Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. We are also focused on Corporate Compliance Insight, and your hosts are Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and if CEOs and corporations have what we know is the annual Larry Fink Letter to CEOs, and when I watch sports, as we are in the February, there's the more wick for me every year. I have an Ellen Hunt state of the function. Ellen, I don't know how she manages to do all the amazing work that she does while also be a mentor and an advocate for so many people, and including me, a friend to me. She's also my first guest ever on GWIC. She's now been a Sparky for over a year, so we can hear a little bit about life as she settled into that role before she lets us know the state of our function. So with that, Ellen, I know most of the people here have heard your story of how you started. If you can give a little bit of an update on you to our newer listener. Yeah, I started back in the day and I was voluntold into the ethics and compliance function. I worked as a lawyer doing a lot of M&A, both as in big law and in-house, but I worked for a healthcare entity that got charged with six counts of fraud under the False Claims Act. And they needed some help. And part of the resolution of that was that they would have a compliance program. And so they tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think you're the person to do it. But it was actually a beneficial thing for me because I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to help people. And getting into ethics and compliance helped me do that in a way that was, I thought, much more fulfilling and valuable. As a lawyer, I wrote memos. (laughs) As an ethics and compliance officer, people came to my office with problems and they had to be solved in a way that was humane and fair. And I have enjoyed being part of the ethics and compliance profession ever since. And now I'm consulting which has given me the real opportunity to help compliance teams and compliance professionals meet their objectives and goals and improve their programs. And it's really been fabulous. We're all very grateful for what you do for the community as a whole and the amount of different insights that you will And with that, one of the things that you and I have talked about now for a couple of years, which is a top of mind for both of us, is retaliation. The first time we talked about it, we talked about how we in the ethics and compliance world could do a lot better. So let's talk about that. Are we doing any better? I think maybe in some pockets we are, but I think there's still a lot of room for improvement. I study codes of conduct, help write them for our sparky clients and policies and procedures. And I think we are still evolving in some ways from a rules-based to a values-based. But I think for the profession itself, it's an evaluation from the telling people what to do to delivering on the promise, which is what when people come with questions and concerns, how do you treat them? And how are you being fair and transparent about that? And to your point, Lisa, how do you protect because we have a very empty promise out there of speak up, but we don't tell anybody what's going to happen when they do. And we don't protect them from retaliation, except for maybe a few organizations out there who have taken that commitment and obligation seriously. But I don't see a lot of progress there. I see intention. I see good intentions. 
I see, and also being a little bit in the weeds day to day, I work on a lot of investigations. So I, what I find an even more challenging aspect is not necessarily retaliation against a reporter. But we bring in people to be witnesses who may have information or other things. And I've been thinking a lot about those individuals lately because they don't really have a stake except for to do the right thing and they want to do the right thing. And I think that's a part where we do have some real challenges as well. And I don't think for either of these questions, there are easy answers because as you just said about your life, people come to you with problems. And when somebody comes to you with a problem, you're often looking at several different perspectives and some things lead to retaliation and some don't. So it's a really, really hard thing to look at. One of the things we don't do, Lisa, is we don't open up the black box of the process, not only for the managers, but the people who are being interviewed. We don't communicate throughout the process of what's the status. We don't talk about the resolution, right? So all of a sudden, ethics and compliance shows up at a staff meeting is and is training everybody on the travel and expense policy. And we're just not very commutative and transparent about what's going on. But we also don't prepare our managers well to deal with the conflict and the disruption that happens when there's an investigation of their area, whether they're a subject or not. Trust, this erodes trust. And that's a hard thing. Next to getting feedback is probably the hardest thing there is, right? Because somebody has decided they needed to talk to somebody else besides you, or they've talked to you and they didn't get the resolution or the results they wanted, right? right? So it's hard. And we don't coach and counsel those managers on how to, how are they feeling? And right. let's the compliance investigation, people are fearing that they're going to lose their job, their reputation, their standing within their department and with their colleagues, all kinds of consequences. And we know that retaliation is extremely subtle and hard, hard to prove. But we don't, and we don't work on the relationship piece. And with all due respect to my HR colleagues, I don't think they do either. (laughs) So we leave people in a lurch. Yeah, I think part of that also, I think from an HR standpoint, putting on that hat from back in the day, some of that over time, I think becomes really hard for burnout, just like for us and for others. And these complicated issues, you're trying to figure out the results. You're trying very hard to treat everybody as well as possible. And sometimes I think our heads get in the weeds and then you've got the next crisis. I think it's hard. One of the things I'm trying to do now is, is I have this little list of people who've helped out on things in the past, and they weren't necessarily the reporter or others. And I just check in on them every couple of months. Everything going okay? Yep. How you doing? Touch wood. It has not had somebody who's come in and said there's a horrible thing happening. But what it has done, which is interesting, and I hadn't thought about this as much, is They'll raise other things to me, and it may not be a concern that it's necessarily theirs, but they'll say, I heard about that. And it's just because it's the, okay, at least I reached out, then it's not in a crisis. And sometimes people just don't respond. I don't mind that either. And I think all of us can get better at that. And when I say that, I'm sure there's probably someone who's listening who's ever been at my company and thinking I didn't write them back or something like that. But I think just trying to do that and also to talk. The other thing recently is to talk managers and others through, this is how we're doing these investigations. We know this person's going to be upset. This is why we're going to do it offsite. This is why yeah. we're going to do this. This is this is why even you're from a different country, but you're the head of the, this part of a business. Can you work from this office for a couple of days to just help? And I think some of that, when you can do that, when you've got the right people is helpful too. I don't know what your thought is on that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, no, I think it's terribly important to try to accommodate as much as you possibly can and to explain. And one of the concepts that I've been fascinated with recently is developing a net promoter score for your program. Would somebody who came to you, either with a question or a concern, refer a friend? And there's criticisms of that metric and all that, but the concept really is how do they feel they were treated? Was response timely? Were they communicated with? Did they think the process was fair? And we don't ask generally those kinds of questions, but by building those relationships and checking in with people, that's what you're doing. And you're creating a referral service, right? I don't know about you, but when somebody says to me, oh, I bought this product or I read this book or I, it was great, mm-hmm. that's somebody I trust and like, I, I'm going to have to have credibility in that referral. Mm-hmm. And that's going to do 10 times more than a poster that says speak up because it's the right thing to do. When there's evidence of somebody who's gone through the process and they weren't fired and they weren't retaliated against and they would recommend it, there you go. And I think that's it. We all want to get to the point where it is preventative and proactive versus it is the huge crisis of misconduct that's been going on for years that's frankly been an open secret for pretty much everybody but the compliance department. (laughs) I would rather deal with somebody who comes and is asking a question about what their next course of action is so that we can guide that than spending my time on investigations. And Lisa, one of the things that I did when reported to my board and executive team is the ratio of questions to concerns. And I always wanted to have three to one, four to one. Please come and talk about it because we can find a workable. Once it's an investigation, maybe not so much. Yeah. Proactive and key. So talking about this, is there anything else you're thinking, would be thinking about how do we best protect people from retaliation? Are there any other strategies that you're thinking of or advising? Yeah, I think that there's some systematic things that we can do with our HR colleagues helping us out, right? I have certainly had, and I think others have, the star performer who's a four or a five on your scale, whatever it may be, when after six months after or whatever, they're suddenly now need a performance improvement. How does that really happen? So that's certainly something that I think there could be much closer collaboration with ethics and HR, because I think HR is being told, oh, they're difficult to deal with, or they're not getting their projects done, or whatever, and they don't know the context of, right. of the investigation and other pieces. I think we can watch absenteeism. I think we can watch office reassignments or any kind of restructuring. And I think that we can also think how people are getting reviewed in the annual review process and in the quarterly process. And I I don't know what the right period of time is. Is It's not three months or six months. It's probably a year and maybe even two. But I I do think that HR and ethics and compliance can collaborate a lot more on individuals who have been collaborators or raised concerns or been part of interviews to make sure that if there are issues on performance, they're legitimate and that there isn't any kind of really a disparate treatment. So with that, you actually, in a way, segue into another thing that we've been talking about. It's not really the treatment as much, but you were talking about our relationship with HR. What about our relationship with ESG? And yeah, I know the first thing when you and I talked, you said, I said, what do you want to talk about? What do you think is really on your mind? Was modern slavery. 
and what our responsibilities are there. What's the relationship with Bayer? What are you seeing and what's new? What should we be keeping? In- it's ever evolving, right? Mm-hmm. And we've certainly seen certain some compliance folks become the ESG officer or take ESG as part of their responsibilities. And I happen to think that's a good trend. I think that's a, it's a very good fit. I'm seeing a lot of different pressure points, I think would be the way I would describe it. There is absolutely a move, not only for ethics and compliance, but I think by boards in general to stop reporting activities and the metrics, but to prove impact and value. And how that relates to ESG is, I think, we have to get a lot about understanding our anti-bribery and our human rights policies. And that means we actually have to do assessments. (laughs) We actually have to know what our third parties are doing. And that's not all that easy, but I think we can't just say we've got the right contract terms. I think that's becoming outdated. And I think our stakeholders, whether that's the board or our investors or just the public at large, really does expect that we know what's happening in our plant somewhere across the world, what's happening with a vendor in their plant somewhere across the world, and how are employees being treated Right. So it's moved from employees being a stakeholder to really third parties that we do business with being stakeholders. And I think we're going to hear a lot about human rights impact assessments. And we're going to really be pushed as an ethics and compliance committee to show how we have impact, positively impact those that interact with us. How did we prevent bribery? How did we prevent modern slavery? How did we prevent forced labor? And I think that's going to be a very big focus for 2023 and beyond. I agree. I also think in many ways, I think it's a good trend, the increased involvement or running, having compliance or ethics and compliance and ESG have a lot of that. What I always am hoping will happen is it doesn't just become an additional opportunity, an additional responsibility for CCOs and not necessarily being resourced for it or only giving teams people who can deal with the E because that's not our really, at least I can speak for my, I'm not real good on the environmental understanding of it all, but the S and the G are critical to us. So how do we make sure you know, that I think that part to me is what I want to make think about as I move forward as well with that. And when you think about modern slavery, anti-bribery, conflicts of interest, a lot of those policies are not just employee focused. Uh, We've had that focus. And that kind of goes back to my comment of moving from rules based to values based. In fact, I had a poll out on, is your hotline only for employees or do you use it for reporting for modern slavery or you let anybody report? I think we've got to think about our stakeholders and our universe in a much broader way. We have supplier codes of conduct, but how are those aligned? And I think the key to all of this is building relationships inside and outside of your organization so that you understand what are what are the people who are doing the E part What do they care about? What are their goals? How is the S being handled? You should have some role in the G, certainly in reporting to your audit or your nominating and governance committee. But these are absolutely right there in, in under the G part. And I think that we've seen a lot of companies say one thing and then do something very different. And that, I think, squarely sits with the ethics officer on how are you representing that you are, I'll take Disney as an example, a friendly uh, employer 
that believes in equity and all that. And then you support legislation that says, don't say gay. It just doesn't work. Just doesn't work anymore. No, it doesn't. With that, the last topic I really wanted to talk about with you is a bit about fairness and equality. Recently, it's interesting because Mary and I both ended up having some topics about being kind and authentic and genuine in your experience. And I had spoken a couple of weeks ago, like she spoke with Carrie Servino, I spoke with Amy Shue at Morgan Lewis, and we were talking about kind versus nice, inequality versus fairness. And the thing that really I wanted to talk about with you that comes back into these things is the idea of treating people equally may not be, how, where do you, you know, how do you just define that and what do you think? Yeah, so I think there's a bunch of different concepts here. And when I think about fairness, particularly from an ethics and compliance perspective, I'm very focused on the concepts of organizational justice. And the reason for that is because it produces employee engagement. It, it impacts the bottom line. And part of fairness is the pay piece. And we'll talk about that too, but it's also the procedural piece, right? And where I think the equality piece is you can't have processes that treat people the same, right? Yep. You're going to yep. sit down with the person who has raised the concern and do an intake report, right? You're going to communicate with those that are involved at certain intervals. You're going to share a certain amount of information without breaching confidentiality about the result of the invest, right? These are things that you can do within the process that are consistent and, ha and a uniform process. And right. that treats everybody who's going through the process fairly. It doesn't mean that the outcome is the same. And we confuse these things, right? And when we talk about equity, particularly when we talk about pay equity, I think we sometimes confuse, right, that every we, we shortcut to everybody should get paid the same. And the answer is, no, when you really think about that and what they mean when they talk about the equity piece and D-E-N-I is that everybody who's doing the same job should be paid the same. And for many of us professionals, we don't do the same job because we've been hired as knowledge workers and we all bring our own unicorn right. <laughs> skills and talents, right? And some may be valued more than others. I think we need to be careful about, yes, treating me exactly the same, because then that makes employers go to things like mandating that everybody's back at, to work five days a week, right? Right. We want flexibility. We want to be treated as individuals, but then we also want to be treated the same as everybody else. And so I we've got to think about these concepts very carefully because I do believe that each of us brings our mm -hmm. own unique talents and skills. And some of those are going to be valued more than others. That doesn't mean that somebody isn't doing a good job, they are just different in their skills and talents. And so we have to think about this very carefully when we think about pay equity. But we also have just a mentality of find, recruit people at the lowest price you can. And that I think is destructive to the environment and to the well-being of employees with understanding the, how they're valued. If a company says that a certain job should be rewarded with comp and pay at a certain level than it should. And we shouldn't have these negotiations about when we're recruiting people about what's your pay range. Yeah, so. I think 
Yeah, it's interesting on that too. I think the opposite side that I think about a lot is you do have investigations where we're separate from retaliation, we're separate from anything else, but you have somebody who is either a poor performer from an HR standpoint or discipline or whatever. And as a result of that, some people you can really help coach back up or other things, some people maybe or maybe not. But even with all of that in mind, you as the manager are spending an awful lot of time on that person. And at the same time, you've got the, these other people who might be in the same position, just different skills, et cetera. But they end up not only doing more of the work because they're quieter on, and won't do that, but they end up getting more responsibilities. It becomes almost, I think of it as like a virtual promotion. It's only virtual. You're not, you've just taken on a bunch of things in part because everybody else is tied up with this investigation or this problem. And I think that is a problem for fairness, for equity too, because you may all have the same responsibilities, but the work, the other things, and the sameness isn't fair or true equity. Yeah. And a couple things on that. One is, and just talking to women, <laughs> yeah, we're not yeah. good at setting boundaries, good at negotiating for our salary. We're not good at asking for the promotion. And I think depending upon which generation you were born in, you may have more of this than others. The thing was to get to the office before the boss, leave after the boss. The harder you work, the more you'll be rewarded. That was the mentality. And the truth is, yeah, you're rewarded with more hard work, not rewarded with the promotion. You're not. And I have to say, we have to get better about saying what we will do and what we won't do politely and respectfully. But you, ha if you don't set the boundaries, then is it really your boss's or the team's fault? Right. You've got to set those boundaries. And I think you also have to advocate for yourself. You have to, and that isn't just saying, hey, I do more than the rest of the team and I should get paid more. That's having a very authentic and honest conversation with your boss on, these are the things I've done. This is what I, it's achieved. And I believe I should be paid more because of it, or I should get the promotion or the whatever. But I think that, that if we don't, if we're not showing up and coming to the table, yep. we're setting those boundaries and asking for what we think we deserve, then we need to own up to our responsibility there. And to do that, because I will say, men do it. <laughs> and then they get what they want. And this is one of the key things, Lisa. And I talk to a lot of people mentoring them where they are or where they want to go or getting new. And one of the key things, really key, is what do you want? And if you can't answer that question for yourself, then you can't expect your boss and your coworkers to somehow understand what you want. Yeah, I think that's really important for all of us to keep in mind. And it, I think, at least for me as a woman, it's harder, especially when you're feeling with your peers or with others, like you all want to support each other. And then sometimes you where the boundaries should be, or especially you all have busier times. But one of the things that I personally have been reflecting on over the last year is when to say no or not even know it's prioritized because I'm not going to do five things because that's what we've said we do. But here are the three that I, these are the ones I think I, we can do realistically and well. How do you want to handle all this? Because the answer, on the other hand, once you go and say that, if your boss's answer is do it all, then you have to think, is my expectation unrealistic or is theirs? Am I maybe, and become more efficient with it? But to keep it in mind, also, the other thing I find is if you say, 
I'm going to be out this day or I'm, I can't do this or I can't do that. Once you've worked or you've established yourself as credible, people will respect that as well. I think we as women yeah. sometimes forget to do that for Yeah. One of the things that I have found very effective and I can't remember where I read it or what book I read it in is no can be hard for people to hear, right? Because it's emphatic. But think about, can you do yes and or yes, but? Yes, I'd be happy to do that project. And to do that, I'm going to need to shift the due date on this one, or I'm going to have to get some help with another project. That's a, that's very reasonable. That's right. different than no, I'm not going to help you. That's right. le- I'm trying to accommodate and achieve and fulfill my other promises. And another is yes, right? Yes, but if I do that, then you realize that I can't also do this or do that or achieve, maybe achieve another goal. So think about those strategies so that you're not coming across as setting such a boundary that it is unnegotiable. And I happen to believe that there's a workable solution to every problem. Yeah, I agree. If you communicate, right? And so that's a strategy that I have used and I find it, it really helps when you say, okay, but, or yes, and then I need this or that. And one of the other things that I've done with some success too, is when you get in that moment where you're in a meeting and everyone's thinking about what needs to be done in the boss, okay, Lisa can do this. And then finally, Lisa can do this. And it's not even bad intentions after, afterward, Andrea is like, let's just manage some expectations. In the last five minutes, you've said, here are the four things you may want me to do. So... With that in mind, what do you want me to do and when? And if not, yeah. what support? And to just talk about it that way. And then oftentimes, even the most some stressed out person might say, oh, God, I really just did that. They'll say, the real answer is we want everything tomorrow, but we can't do that. So let's figure it out. So I think people are yeah. reasonable with that. But you have to speak up in a way. Yeah, that's you, you do. And the other thing that I've done, Lisa, sometimes when I felt that some of the expectations and the assignments were unrealistic because it just hadn't been thought out. And that happens is is to say, if you were me, how would you prioritize this? How would you handle this? Because then that really puts that person in your seat. And then they go, oh my God, I've asked you to do a hundred hours worth of work in 20 hours. And they get it. They come to the conclusion themselves. So that's another way to politely suggest, hey, this is unrealistic. And I'm going to close it out with a little bit of a piece of advice that you've given to me that I also, that others have, and I share it too, which is when you get all those things, you may have a lot on your plate, but there may be somebody else who that, those assignments can be real growth opportunities and gives you an opportunity to say, team member X, I can man, I can supervise a little bit. I think they're really interested in this because what may be a task for me is because in I, and people are just comfortable because they know I've done it can really be an opportunity for someone else to build their absolutely absolutely any opportunity that you have that you can't fulfill think about who you can recommend for it absolutely with that i I always really enjoy any conversation with you but i particularly love what i now call the hunt report hopefully (laughs) we'll, we'll see you before 2024 but i think it's pretty fair to commit that we'll be hearing more about all this from you and thank you so much alan really great oh my my pleasure thank you lisa Thank you. Have a great day, y'all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.